Welcome to SCOTUScast, a project of the Federalist Society for Law and Public Policy Studies. Our contributors join us from around the country to bring you expert commentary on U.S. Supreme Court cases as they are argued and decisions are issued. The Federalist Society takes no position on particular legal or public policy issues. All expressions of opinion are those of the speaker. Hello and welcome to SCOTUScast. I'm your host, Justin Drower, on behalf of the Faculty Division of the Federalist Society. We're here today to discuss Mallory v. Norfolk Southern Railway Company, which was argued before the court on November 8th. It's my honor to introduce Professor Christopher Green as our guest today, who is a professor of law and the Jamie L. Witten Chair in Law and Government at the University of Mississippi School of Law, where he has taught since 2006. He's written extensively on constitutional theory and the 14th Amendment, and we're happy to have him here today to talk about the case. So I think, uh, Professor Green, we can start off if you're uh, if you're willing to talk about kind of why this case matters, why our listeners should uh, continue listening in this episode. Well, this is so this is a case that will uh, bring back uh, memories, perhaps fond memories, perhaps uh I hope not. I hope won't, won't trigger too much PTSD from your civil procedure class back in law school. But uh, it has to do with Panoyer versus Neff and all of the old regime and how much of it survived the transition to international shoe. Uh, so I I've vividly remember a, a very bad joke uh, saying that before 1977, when Schaefer versus Heitner came down, uh, everybody is waiting for Schaefer to uh, or wait, waiting for some case to uh, decide whether quasi in rem jurisdiction was still a thing after international shoe. And uh, of course, you know, then there was, I, I think, a list of, of many articles talking about waiting for the other shoe to drop. Uh, so there are have been many shoes that have dropped, uh, kind of waiting to see uh, the extent to which international shoe. Uh, replaced uh, the old uh, regime. Um, lots of talk in the oral argument about Burnham versus Superior Court from 1990 uh, about tag process uh, that survives uh, uh, international shoe. So international shoe says that traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice are the important consideration. Uh, for and then here's the question, really, for the Mallory case: um, Is it just the question for unconsenting defendants, or is this a general regime for all assertions of personal jurisdiction by a state? So uh, it's fascinating because it really gets down to just the very, very bedrock of what the Fourteenth Amendment is, what due process is, what personal jurisdiction is. And the extent to which uh, these old cases like Panoyer are still kind of the general uh, regime. And particularly, it's it's an old case from 1917 called Pennsylvania Fire, which upholds uh, a particular kind of statute, uh, which uh, I will explain in a second. But that, in terms of motivation, uh, can't get more motivating, I think, for a for a FedSoc crowd than getting down to bedrock. Well, there we go. Thank you. Um, and, and before we get into... Uh, takeaways from the oral argument uh, or or uh, the uh, the things you just mentioned. Do you want to give a, a quick summary of the kind of background of the case, how we got here um, before we get into the kind of legal details of, of the argument? Sure. So the basic, uh, so in personal jurisdiction, you need to have uh, 
yeah, under under international shoe, you need to have uh, minimum contacts uh, necessary to satisfy fair play and substantial justice. Of course, it has always been a right that can be waived. So you can explicitly consent. So if you get sued uh, in some court and you show up and you say, oh, this is fine, we can litigate it here. Uh, I consent to it. You can just give up your personal jurisdiction rights. There's no problem with a court adjudicating in that kind of uh, setup. Well, Pennsylvania has a statute um, and it says, if you wanna do business in our state, uh, you have to consent to personal jurisdiction uh, of the, the courts of this state. So uh, you have this, uh, so Norfolk Southern Railroad does lots and lots and lots of business all over the country. Uh, they are a Virginia corporation, chiefly. Uh, that's their principal place of business. This is a Virginia plaintiff suing about stuff that happened in Virginia. So it is a Virginia cubed case, uh, Virginia subject matter, Virginia plaintiff, Virginia defendant. But uh, he's got a plaintiff's attorney in Philadelphia, which you know not that far from uh, from where he is in Virginia. Norfolk Southern does plenty of business in uh, Pennsylvania, and they've got the statute that the Supreme Court had said was okay in 1917, um, uh, a generation before International Shoe. Um, and uh, so this Pennsylvania uh, uh, law firm says, "Hey, we can just file it in Pennsylvania and and do it here." Uh, the uh, Superior Court in Pennsylvania says, ah, no, this doesn't seem like uh, uh, fair play and substantial justice to us. Uh, Pennsylvania Supreme Court agrees. Uh, so the Pennsylvania courts uh, or, or Pennsylvania acting through its courts is not attempting to take advantage of this statute uh, and say, hey, uh, we've, uh, we've got consent to uh, adjudicate it. Uh, but then this comes up to the U.S. Supreme Court under under 1257. This is the kind of case, by the way, that Justice Stevens thought they should never take. They thought, well, if a state uh, court says that something uh, violates uh, federal law, it's not really any business of ours. We can wait for the state authorities to to deal with it. Uh, but it comes up, and uh, it uh, so this is there's a follow on to a so there's a concurring opinion in the Ford Motor case from a couple of years ago by Justice Gorsuch, uh, joined by Justice Thomas. And he specifically says uh, it seems like we should take a case sometime soon to decide whether these old cases like Pennsylvania Fire from 1917 are uh, still good law. OK, so pretty clear who wants to have this uh, reviewed. Um, Steve Sachs uh, at Harvard, he's uh, the uh, uh I would say the uh, kind of leading originalist scholar on uh, uh, civil procedure issues, anyway, uh, on this kind of thing. Uh, he thinks they should uh, they should uh, reverse or vacate at least, and then send it back uh, to the Pennsylvania courts on uh, a dormant commerce clause issue. But you've got Justice Gorsuch wanting them to consider cases like this. You've got people like Steve uh, wanting uh, them to consider uh, cases like that. So that's how it gets to the court. It's not. I mean, you always wonder in, in terms of predicting. Uh, what's going to happen? Why did they take the case? Did, is this a grant cert to reverse or a grant cert to resolve a circuit split? Is this a grant cert to uh, you resolve an issue that's been raised earlier in a uh, concurrence or dissent from denial of cert, that kind of thing? It's definitely a grant cert because Justice Gorsuch um, uh, thinks uh, thinks Mallory should win. He thinks Pennsylvania is allowed to do this. The 1917 case is, is uh, well-reasoned. Uh, it's it, 
seems pretty clear from the from his comments at oral argument uh, that uh, Mallory starting out with uh, uh, at least that one vote. Um, but it's unclear how many. I, mean, I think he, he uh, definitely has Mallory definitely has Sotomayor's vote uh, on grounds uh, related to her uh, uh, kind of dissent slash separate opinion in the Daimler case from 2017. It's not clear that he, that Mallory's got more than two, though, uh, uh, to me. So, um, uh, but that's the no, that's the the basic basic issue is can Pennsylvania say in order to do business here you've got to uh, consent to personal jurisdiction? They are the only state at this point uh, that has a statute that explicit. Uh, there's a bunch of controversy in the oral argument about exactly how many there were at different times, how many there were in 1868. Um, but the fact that it is uh, the only state doing this uh, today, I think, is a pretty significant fact. Certainly, Chief Justice Roberts, I think, uh, 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 honed in on that. And uh, uh, that may be, I, I think, the you know one of the key facts when the when the decision comes out. So in terms of um, the implication of, of the due process clause, do you want to talk a little bit about how how all of this kind of comes to bear? Like how um, you referenced 1868, of course, the, the 14th Amendment, uh, basically how the due process clause factors into all of this um, before we get into the oral argument. Sure, sure. So one big question, and this this showed up last spring in a number of the cases uh, like Dobbs and Bruin. So those are substantive due process cases. Um, most people think that they, you know, they could be shifted over to uh uh, privileges or immunities clause, the footnote to footnote twenty two in in Dobbs, that kind of kind of issue. Uh, but one thing that was interesting um, is the fact that there are two different kinds of facts about the distribution of uh, states that you can look at uh, in in gun cases, abortion cases, in civil procedure cases. You can look at the the number of states that had a certain kind of statute at the time of the adoption of the 14th Amendment in 1868, or you can look at the number of states today. Um, and in uh, in Bruin, for instance, uh, they said, hey, look, there's a 44 to six or 43 to six, if you if you don't count Vermont, uh, a split in favor of the right to carry today. Um, uh, this is the kind of thing that we, you know, we're all we're doing is uh, imposing a consensus among most of the states. Justice Kavanaugh's separate opinion in Bruin, for instance, uh, highlighted this kind of fact. Um, the fact they, you know, the court was also very concerned about the exact distribution of states in 1868 at the time of the adoption. Um, at one point, uh, they said in, in Dobbs, as the most important fact uh, historically. Well, in the land of traditional notions of fair play and substantial justice, this regime that you've got under international shoe, you have exactly the same uh, uh, split, uh, you know, kind of different uh, versions of the fact. You can count up statutes in 1868 and you can count up statutes today. Um, in well, one thing that's interesting, at the oral argument in Mallory, they uh, a lot of the justices focused attention on Justice Scalia's separate opinion in Burnham from 1990. Uh, Justice Brennan was not getting a whole lot of love, uh, but there is a uh, a little uh, ditty at the end of uh, uh, Justice uh, Scalia's opinion. Let me uh, let me pull up the exact language here, um, if I can. Okay, so at the end of Justice Scalia's uh, opinion for the uh, 
Uh, well, so it's not an opinion for the court. It's a separate opinion. He has four votes. Brennan has four votes. And then uh, Justice Stevens says he's not going to not going to decide. But one of the things he says, he says, nothing we say today prevents. So this is tag process that they're talking about in 1990. So the fact that somebody has been in the state uh, and it, it, somebody comes in and says, hey, uh, uh, tag, you're you're being sued. I'm going to sue you here in the state that you're in. Is that enough? And uh uh, the court, uh, uh, all of the, uh, uh, everybody on the court says that's okay, but they split on the rationale. And Justice Scalia says the reason that this is okay is tradition. Justice Brennan says the reason this is okay is because it's actually fair. But uh, it certainly seems from the the argument in Mallory that uh, this will give them the opportunity to say as a court that Scalia was right. It's uh, about tradition. But here's what Scalia says at the end. He says, um, nothing we say today uh, prevents individual states from limiting or entire, entirely abandoning the in-state service basis of jurisdiction. And nothing prevents an overwhelming majority of them from doing so with the consequence that the traditional notions of fairness that this court applies may change. Okay, so if what Scalia says in Burnham also applies to a state extracting consent to personal jurisdiction, it seems like uh, it seems like Norfolk Southern is going to win because I an mean, overwhelming majority of the states, uh, all of them except Pennsylvania, uh, do not do it this way. The question, I, I think, the key interpretive question in terms of looking back at Burnham is: Does this really apply uh, to consent as well as to non-consenting? Uh, assertions of personal jurisdiction. And Mallory certainly uh, argues and, you know, has some some tech, some basis for saying it, that this is only for non-consent. There are a few passages earlier in, in Scalia's opinion where uh, he sort of says this, you know, international sue and traditional notions, that subsumes, quote, consent, unquote. So the, the kind of uh, slightly fictional version of consent that happened in the 19-teens and 1920s uh, under some cases. Uh, but does it actually trump Consent, consent, uh, uh, where you've explicitly said, I hereby agree to be uh, sued and I'm giving up my personal jurisdiction rights in exchange for the right to do business in your state. Um, I think that's that's one big uh, one big question uh, that's uh, that's looming is just, you know, what what exactly does this stuff from from Burnham apply to? So I think the future civil pro uh, civil procedure students uh, of the world. Uh, we'll look forward to this being uh, a clear case, uh, just setting out exactly what the what the rules are for that. Sure. And uh, are there any I know we started talking about the oral argument. So uh, are there any other kind of key moments during the oral argument or, or takeaways that uh, that you think would be worth talking about? Sure. So I think that one of the big takeaways, the big things they're struggling with is um, so you know the one question did the railroad consent and then there's another question is this consent uh something that Pennsylvania was okay when they extracted so that would be uh, a dormant commerce clause issue where some people have said the dormant commerce clause stuff should be shifted to uh the comedy clause of article 4 section 2 clause 1 um uh, so there's a bunch of i mean there are a lot of time taken up at oral argument saying 
Uh, should we uh, think of this in terms of an unconstitutional condition on a right that you have under the Dormant Commerce Power, uh, Dormant Commerce Clause, uh, or I don't think anybody actually explicitly mentioned Article Four, but that certainly would be on the table as as a way to to think about it. Well, one issue with Article Four, of course, is that corporations traditionally don't have Article Four rights because they're not citizens; they're just persons. Um, but there's a bunch of uh, a bunch of questions just about how to think about unconstitutional conditions. Uh, I think everybody uh, agrees that there were a couple of laugh uh, lines uh, about how confusing unconstitutional conditions doctrine is. So it's possible that this will also be a big case on unconstitutional conditions, which really would be uh, a kind of a theoretical, uh, uh, a good thing to, to have them just really dig into, into that issue. In terms of the argument, to kind of looking, counting to five, seems like Norfolk Southern can, can count to five much more easily than, than Mallory can. So uh, Justice Kagan was very clear uh, in a number of her questions that uh, she thinks uh, it just it, she's asking the questions from the side of, uh, of of saying, look, they've got a right to do business. You can't just, you know, demand that they give up the right in, in exchange for having um uh, uh, personal, you know, can't, can't give up the right not to have personal jurisdiction. The kind of right you have under the Daimler case, uh, you can't just make them give that up uh, as a condition of doing business. Uh, Justice Jackson, I think, was was of a similar mind. Uh, Justice Kavanaugh had a kind of pragmatic, uh, asked some some pragmatic questions that suggest that uh, you know this would be an end run around uh, Daimler. Um, I don't know if they ever actually use the word end run. Uh, so the standard rhetorical move, if somebody accuses you of making an end run around some earlier doctrine, is that the end run is a legal play. You're allowed to uh, not go into the line and, and, and go further out uh, in football. But uh, you know the, the argument that the, the sense that, hey, this doesn't make sense, given what they just said in Daimler, that seems to be pretty widely uh, felt uh uh, down the line. Justice Sotomayor didn't like Daimler. Uh, so she says, look, you're you're doing all this business in Pennsylvania. Just, you know, you know, just deal with the lawsuit in Pennsylvania. If the, if the plaintiff wants to be there, uh, uh, no, uh, it's no skin off your back. You're huge. Uh, you can you can do that. Um, so I think it seems like Mallory has got, you know, got Gorsuch and uh, uh, Justice Sotomayor, but Kagan and Jackson, Roberts made this point, uh, uh, picking up on some of Justice Scalia's comments about traditions being able to change. Uh, uh, Kavanaugh had the pragmatic thing. So it just it, and Justice Thomas uh, didn't he joined Justice Gorsuch's opinion in the Ford case, but it didn't seem like he was. So he joined an opinion prior to this Gamble case on dual sovereignty exceptions to uh, double jeopardy. And a lot of people thought, oh, he uh, he and Ginsburg are both going to uh, uh, want to overrule that old doctrine. And then he said, no, actually, after I looked at the details, you know, that that earlier concurrence meant what it meant. Uh, it meant what it said. It, it meant that this is an issue we we should uh, we should look at, and actually, having looked at it, we shouldn't uh, overrule these old precedents. So Justice Thomas could do a similar thing uh, in this case. Justice Barrett uh, asked some. Uh, I, it's interesting learning how to decipher what they what these new justices think from what they say at oral argument. Uh, she obviously had looked very carefully at the case. She said, uh, "Well, suppose I disagree." Asking Mar Mallory, uh, uh, Mallory's counsel, uh, suppose I disagree with your reading of some of these old statutes. What would we do then? Um, and, uh, in, she didn't have a follow-up though. So it was, it was unclear whether she was satisfied or not with that answer. Uh, and I think she, uh, if you read her, her law review articles, it's clear. She's just very careful about what she's saying, what she's not saying. Uh, she doesn't like to tip her hand during oral argument and, uh, and she didn't, but 
at least she did say, you know, she was skeptical about the reading of some of those old statutes. So I would put her, it seems from those into the, the lean, uh, lean Norfolk. So it, it, you know, this could be, uh, could be seven, two, uh, uh, for the railroad could, you know, could be somewhere else, but it seems like, uh, seems like the, the railroad is, is likely to win this. This is not going to be a way, the wave of the future, uh, and, you know, kind of a, an increasingly pop, increasingly popular way for states to get around Daimler. It seems like the Daimler rule, uh, which was, you know, it was 8-1 on that rule in 2017. That's not uh, going anywhere. And it doesn't seem like this is a way uh, to, to get around it. So uh, I think uh, uh, Steve Stacks and friends uh, may well be uh, disappointed by the by the result here. All right. So uh, my my next question was going to be about predicting the results, but we uh, we we uh, we covered that quite uh, seamlessly. So I guess uh, as we kind of get towards the 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 end portion of the episode, uh, is there anything else that you think is is worth covering with this case? Anything else you'd kind of like to leave the audience with um, after that quite good uh, analysis of the argument? Uh, nothing particular to add. I think it, it is it is one to look forward to, and it's you know, there's no question. It's a, you can read uh, uh, next year's CivPro uh, casebook supplements uh, to, uh, this year uh, if you take a look at this case. So it's it's uh, uh, it's catnip for people who are who are uh, interested in, in just the really fundamental uh, issues uh, underlying the civil procedure system that we have, and uh, I, I look forward eagerly to, to devouring into it. And I, of course, hope there's lots of separate opinions and concurrences to uh, to make it more interesting. All right. Well, Professor Green, thank you very much for uh, coming on SCOTUS Cast today and, and talking about this case. We uh, we appreciate having you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode of SCOTUScast. SCOTUScast is a project of the Federalist Society, a not-for-profit educational organization of conservative and libertarian law students, law professors, and lawyers, founded upon the principles that the state exists to preserve freedom, that the separation of governmental powers is central to our Constitution, and that it is emphatically the province and duty of the judiciary to say what the law is, not what it should be. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast series, including SCOTUScast and Practice Group Podcasts, on iTunes or Google Play. For an archive of past podcasts, as well as audio and video of past Federalist Society events, please visit our website at fedsoc.org multimedia. That's F-E-D-S-O-C dot multimedia. This has been a FedSoc audio production. 